What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up with your bad, big, bad, bad, big, biggity, bad, bad. Biggity, bad, bad. That's wickedy, wah, wah. Wickedy, wah, 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 west. You've done that a few times, actually. I have a suspicion that you, of an evening, when you're sort of just, you know, you have to judge yourself, dance around the house to Will Smith's greatest hit, the Fresh Prince. My smoking jacket. <laughs> Do you have a smoking jacket? No, what, what was the... Th- I don't, never quite understood this. A smoking jacket is... Um, is a dressing gown. Is that right? It's sort of a thin dressing gown, deliberately designed to open at the navel. I don't know. But why like is it a smoking jacket? I imagine you have a cigarette with a cigarette holder. But what, Probably a menthol. But, no, but what I don't understand is what is it about that jacket? I mean, I don't smoke, so I don't... I don't understand. But what is it about the jacket? That, that, because it's like a quilted thing, right? And okay. you put it on in order to smoke. It's like having smoking shoes. What's, I don't understand what a smoking jacket is. What does it mean? Smoking shoes. <laughs> I've got on my drinking fancy. socks and my quite, smoking shoes. Do you think smoking shoes actually sound quite good? That's, that sounds like a pair of country and western boots or something like yeah, that. Yeah, smoking. I've got my smoking, smoking shoes hot. But I think a smoking jacket you put on after a meal when you... But uh, when why? You, well, because you wouldn't smoke during a meal. No, no. but why do you change to have a cigarette? Why, don't is don't, it, don't is, you is, change is, after that. Is it an ash thing? Is it to stop the ash going? Is that this is a serious question? You're asking the wrong person, okay, really. Okay, because you don't smoke either. No. Have you ever smoked? No, not properly. We said not properly. What, what, what is this? It's, it's podcast extras. It's, I right. can do whatever I want because it doesn't have to be about film. Have you ever smoked? Well, of course you try. You try it. And how was it? Things. It's all right. See, my main problem with it was this. I mean, quite apart from the fact that smoking is evil and wrong and bad, which I do believe very militantly. Um, St Bruno. St Bruno rough cut. Yeah, with a, for, for my pipe. <laughs> I had a long, one of those long curly pipes, you know, that they used to have. <laughs> I, think, I think Schopenhauer probably had yeah. one as he was working out his latest miserable thesis. He would be puffing on a little bit of rough St Bruno. But you see, my problem was Madam. this. I wanted, when I was younger, I wanted to look like James Dean, right? And obviously. And you do, Mark. No, thank you. And so, but in that picture, all, all the pictures of James Dean, you always, had, you always had a cigarette. And um, the problem is, I think that I must be allergic to them. So I tried to smoke when I was like, a, you know, I went to university to look like James Dean. And literally what would happen is I'd inhale smoke and my it would be like my head would be on fire with pain. And it was, and it wouldn't, and it would never stop. And I just thought, I don't understand how this is possible. What you literally, you inhale this and your whole head feels like it's going to die. Yeah, not very good. That's not really a good feeling. The only time I've thought it looked... Uh, by the way, this is all very, very bad. No, I'm saying it, it is bad. It is a terrible thing. Because it, it will kill you. Yes, and it's evil and it gives money to bad people. Exactly. Apart, yeah. Is I went to see the Stray Cats play in Brighton. Why have the lights gone off in the... That was next door. They're, because they're going to get it on next door. <laughs> You must tell us your you must tell your story in just a moment. But anyway, what? when they came on, yes. Brian Setzer, Slim, Slim Jim, and the other one, Stuck they came his cigarette on, at the end of his end of his guitar. They, no, no, what they did is they came on and they just piled their quips. They were yeah. like mighty, mighty huge quips. Yeah, and there's yeah, the hair piled high and baby looks so right. Guitar, slappy Pick bass. Pick up have you number two. One drum, one cymbal, and they yeah. just lit up and they came on and yeah. they looked amazing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, their lungs didn't look amazing. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Well, anyway, can... but here we, we're in the Millbank studio because, because of tennis and because <laughs> um, of reasons of tennis and, and oh golf. It's not. It's uh, oh golf. T- tennis was the last two weeks. We're here because of golf. Golf is the one on the ground, right? And you were downstairs mm-hmm. here at the Millbank Studios in London's palatial southwest yes. Parliament area. <laughs> yes. And tell us what tell us what you were seeing. 
There was some snogging going on. Was it John Peanut? <laughs> I couldn't was it Laura say. It's just one of those weird things. Because I mean, Chris I, Mason, was it him? I, it was <laughs> I'm not going to go through all the parliamentary <laughs> correspondence. Just, I don't think it was BBC snogging. How I can think, you tell? Is there well, a particular time? Well, I'm sure that there's a sort of, you know, there's an ITV Channel 4 kind of snogging, isn't there? And a, and a BBC kind Slightly of loose. <laughs> and I was doing that classic thing of going, you know, I, I'm so British. The idea that I'm sitting and I'm here, I'm do, doing Haven't this. they got up. a job to do? It's the middle of the day. Yeah, but I don't know. You Not know, in public. There was snogging on the sofa. And I, you know... and. It, I just thought... Was it embarrassing? Did you go up It was say... embarrassing for them. They seemed perfectly happy. And good for them. They're in love and that's lovely. Well, they might be. They might just be taking advantage. <laughs> well, they might just be thinking, I've got ten minutes before we go back to do the latest report for Victoria Derbyshire's programme. Let's just have a snog. Did you ever snog in the back of the oh, cinema? Right. OK. So, <laughs> Why is this all questions about me? Because I don't know. I suppose you so. You don't know. Yes, well, I, you involuntarily. I don't know, Your Honour. Shall I, I do some of the some of the podcast no, correspondence? You can do, but finish this first. Did you ever snog in the back of a cinema? I can't remember. I suppose. Oh, so. rubbish! Of course you can remember. Everyone remember. can remember. No, I can't remember. No, absolutely no idea. Okay. What are you talking about? <laughs> you ready? Finished. <laughs> anyway, it's against the code of conduct. It's, it is against the code of conduct, and I, but it was against my code of conduct when I was younger. Although, luckily enough. There was nobody around who wanted to play tonsil hockey with me in the back of a cinema. Anyway, That's a very, so. very sad thing. <laughs> anyway, but you, so you didn't recognise the, the Millbank snoggers downstairs? I didn't, no. I did. Can we send someone down just to, too. just to see who it was? Because I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's Tom Bradbury from ITN. That's right, exactly. It was ITN. It was it was ITN behaviour. It wasn't. Is any of this staying in, or is this all coming out? I'm just. No, this is all all staying in so far. Okay, fine. Was it Evan Davis? (laughs) Because at Newsnight, you know, anything goes. They are just. It's ten thirty at night. They just think it's half past ten all the time. I used to do Newsnight Review, which came on at the end of Newsnight, so it'd be like um, a half an hour of hard news. Followed by a half an hour of me and floppy news. Tom Paulin and Jermaine Greer going, hey, you know, whiffling around. And honestly, literally, the minute the, minute the news bit was finished, drinking like fish. I mean, it was just, it was, you know. Uh, isn't it? Here's the thing from before this gets completely random. Um, Bob Eagle has sent us this. Dear Sound of Music and the Sound of Silence, Very at the good. start of last week's podcast, you played a listener's recording of some construction related noise. We did. Who thought this would get. <laughs> we get airplay. After 20 plus years on site, I can tell you that this noise wasn't drilling, but someone using a petrol cutoff saw. This fact wouldn't <laughs> that's brilliant. Wouldn't make trying chill. to watch a film next door to it any less annoying though. Down it, so it was a petrol cutoff saw. Yeah, that's what it is. Is that for cutting I'm, off petrol? I'm just no, 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 impressed that no, no. someone could join in. Don't Hang look on. it up. Don't Why? look it up. I want to know what it is. It'll take you. Oh. No, it won't take but take me no time at all. Petrol cut, cut off, off. So there it is, there it is. That took no time, and here it is. Petrol cutoff saw. There's a picture of it. Good. Oh, you see, well, it's a, it, yeah, it's a circular, you know, circular saw that obviously runs. I don't know what the cutoff thing is. Anyway, if you are cutting bricks, concrete, stone, roof tiles, or metalwork on site, these saws are the professional choice. Do you remember last week um, we had a special guest? We had Harriet Cross, our good friend and consul general in Boston. I do. She was in, in. in the studio. And she watched the show, and yeah. then, we, then we talked to her uh, after. She, she getting, covered up her disappointment very well. She's getting fan mail. and um, I mentioned she was getting fan mail before the show. Lots 
it, it does appear that lots of the uh, foreign agents around the world listen to that. Listen to secret foreign. agents. Secret agents, yeah. Okay. Anyway, Peter Howarth says, I was delighted to hear Harriet on the on Wittertainment last week. What a lovely voice, an exceptional witterer. I had completely forgotten about Harriet Cross when I heard her name mentioned, but remembered her uh, former mention a couple of years ago. Immediately thought, oh my word, I'd completely forgotten about Harriet Cross. Get to the point, Pete. I have always self-defined unbelievably as a short-term listener, an STL, but recently have begun to wonder whether I should instead call myself an MTL, a medium-term listener. I struggle with not having a black-and-white definition. Can you tell me whether remembering Harriet Cross's original appearance qualifies me as an MTL rather than STL? This is a very, very specific and niche email. I think if you can remember when Harriet was talked about first time round, you're a medium-term listener. You know what we have to do? We need to drop a graph of... You know, long, medium, short. Well, we, shall we put it in the boardroom for uh, on the cruise so that people can just drift past? And a bit like, the you know, seeing the seating plan and the cabin arrangements, <laughs> you could come and see whether you're an STL, an MTL or... Mm. Well, whatever. I wouldn't put it in the same room as the seating plan. Because we're leaving next weekend, so it needs to be... Needs I'm to leaving be... this weekend. Oh, OK. I'm getting a, a powerboat to come and join you. Are we, are we going this weekend? Have I got the wrong weekend? Well, I'm off this weekend. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm going off this weekend. And then I think that the deputies are in for a while. Who's doing it? Yes. Edith and Ben. ben yeah. And Robbie. All of them. They're all, you know, here whilst we're... Wandering in and out. Uh, out. Kirsty is here. Kirsty says, uh, following on your interview with Harriet Cross, our Consul General in Boston, uh, you suggested the game What's in the Diplomatic Bag? Yes. Well, my father... <laughs> get this. My father was posted to our embassy in Moscow in the mid-80s. They posted him. My grandmother, <laughs> and it's an official diplomatic language, you yeah. get posted to the embassy. I know you embassy. do, I know it was just a stupid joke. My grandmother sent VHS recordings of Coronation Street in the diplomatic bag twice a week to Russia for more than two years. Those tapes were passed around the embassy and sent back to sent back in the bags to London. Tinkety-tong, says Kirsty. So, That's fantastic. You know, you can send any old tat out in the diplomatic bag. When I used to go and visit William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist in America, I always had to take with me... Um, Is Cat- The Exorcist in America a different film? The Exorcist in yes, exactly. It's like an American in Paris, that. The Exorcist in America. I had to take with me um, Cadbury's Fruit and Nut because he couldn't get it originally in America and it was the thing that he craved because he, d- he had lived here for a while when he was writing something and he had become addicted to it and it was I mean and he really loved it and so I used to go out with like big suitcases full of British chocolate when you put them through the scanner it would always sort of get so you appear to have 25 bars you'll be on the limit exactly that's how I done that was Liam Neeson was apparently got addicted to BBC tea when he did a, what's he, different of BBC tea well he did a lot of BBC drama in Belfast and he just used to drink loads of it so I went to one of the first interviews I did with him this is before he became Liam <laughs> I took him. A, I took him a flagon of BBC tea, and he was most impressed. I bought him a pint. And he never bought me he's, one back. He's done very well out of us, actually. He's yeah, been a tea and a pint, and he, I've never, never. Come on, Neeson comes a Friday. Doesn't ring. He doesn't write. I never hear from him. Doesn't drive the boat. Anyway, <laughs> John. Now, have we got time for this? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm going to pose this now, okay. but you've only got. Let's say 60 seconds okay. to answer this question. Okay. Do you agree with that? I do. Go on in 60 seconds. John in Belfast. I'm going to see Dunkirk on its release, and I notice that the QFT in Belfast is advertising it's being shown in 35mm. Yes. This is something I often hear Mark talk about. I know, John. What is the difference in the different type modes in which cinema can be watched and enjoyed? Um, OK, 60 seconds starting now. 
in the case of uh, Dunkirk, you can see it in 35 millimeter. You can see it in digital projection. You can see it in 70 mil. You can see it in 70 mil IMAX. You can see it in digital IMAX. Uh, the ratios uh, for each one are different. I think they range from 143 up to 240 to 1. Um, and that's about it. Yeah, okay. But what should he go and see? If he's going to see thirty five mil in, uh, in in the QFT, that's a very very good very good. I mean, the, the weird the thing is, 30, if he had yeah, to the, choose thirty five or, 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 or seventy, what would you go for? Um, well, I've seen it in seventy, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to introduce it in thirty five at the Plaza Truro on What's Saturday. The difference? Well, this different shape of picture. I mean, the 70 mil IMAX is the, what you saw, yeah. which is the I can't see the edge of the screen. Yeah. I think I'm in the cockpit with Tom Hardy. Yes. And the 35 millimeter is a more as a more oblong presentation, so it's a more framed experience. But it is obviously um, showing from celluloid. So it, the, the Christopher Nolan thing is always that it's a bit like on Play School. They used to go through a particular window. The wind, the, the square the, window, the, the round window. window. So we're talking. Did you about... always used to guess it? Oh yeah, yeah. But it was. Did you ever used to get it right? Because I used to get a, the thing was if I guessed it right, I got a biscuit. Really? And in a you know in a way, I've just realised. I bet you that's where my obsession with screen ratios come there from. There you go. I bet you that because as a child, if I guessed which window the play school camera was going through, I got a biscuit. It's like Pavlov's dog. It was never the arched window. I don't think the, so the round window, the square window, the arched, arched window, and triangular. Was the other one? There triangular? Were any, there wasn't a triangular. The triangular chocolate from triangular trees made with triangular honey from triangular bees and oh, Mr. Confectioner, please give me Toblerone. <laughs> You're just mentioning products just no, to see what happens. How, I, I, what I'm amazed by is that your mind isn't full of junk pop culture from the period, you know, when you were a kid. I'm too professional. I'm just trying to keep If you've it. ever wondered how you get triangles from a cow, you need buttermilk and cheese and a little bit of thyme. Anyway... Um, that's quite, anyway. <laughs> that's quite enough of this. Eye so, who did clock. you snog in the cinema? Time to start. Names on with, on with the show. It was you downstairs, wasn't it? <laughs> First of all, Alex Glennie, the solutions architect. Yes, yes, another one of those. Oh, not the same one from before. Diff- uh, the, yeah, no, different one. Different I think. one. The world is how full. Many, of, how many, solu- how many how solutions many need. need architects? Today is Child One's twelfth birthday, says okay. Alex, and Very as good. a treat, he's asked to listen live to the show. Hello, Alex. This may not seem so unusual, but as we're currently living in Wellington, New Zealand, this does mean setting the alarm for two o'clock in the morning. So they're listening now at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, or seven minutes past. Uh, is it eight ch- minutes past was two? The, it was Child One. Child One is twelve. So Hello, assuming Child One. Uh, so assuming we've calculated the time difference correctly and the alarm has been sufficiently loud, we'll be listening whilst wrapped in duvets and pyjamas. If you could wish Finley Glenny a happy, fi- a happy birthday, that would uh, make an avid Wittertainment fan very happy. Additionally, the choice of birthday film has come down to Dunkirk or War for Planet of the Apes. Any recommendations? All the best. Love the show, Steve. Alex Glenny. So happy birthday to Finley. If you have to choose between the two and he's 12, I'd say go for both. Because it's his birthday, do a double bill. Actually, that's very, very good. Well, and what a good double bill And that then is. come back and watch all three Lord of the Rings movies in the extended editions and then go to work. Good point. Happy yeah. birthday, Finley. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Finley. Happy birthday to you. Eleanor Moody, who signs this uh, email, almost an almost secondary school student. So Eleanor, we assume, is still in primary, but about to, about to be. So transitioning up to senior school through the summer. So she's about to go to secondary. Okay, You made that much more complicated than it needed to be. Recently, my mum and I went to the cinema to watch Despicable Me 3, which we, (laughs) like Mark, absolutely loved. 
Did you absolutely love it? Yes, I did. I laughed all the way through. As we took our seats well before the ad started, we were greeted by some toddlers sat in the same row. As my mum took her seat, she was firmly told that she was not to laugh by the older one of these children, about a five-year-old looking boy. So said not to laugh. My mum, having a great <laughs> sense of humour, asked if she was allowed to laugh at the minions and the older boy said no. We sat down and each took a sip of our drinks, which were finished before the film started. And then the younger, about a three-year-old looking boy, said to my mum, you can't slurp your drink, in a very annoyed voice. And my mum willingly replied, oh, sorry. So the ads passed and the now familiar pre-film voiceover by But Mark Strong started. He told us to switch off our generic fruit-based device, which still isn't funny. And at the end, he told us not to pick our noses, it being a kid's film and all that. After the film and as the credits rolled, my mum congratulated the boys on their very limited laughing and the older boys said, yeah, I was good at not picking my nose too. My (laughs) mum and I sniggered as they left the screen. I would like to hear the other side of the story from their dad as we feel he might be a member of the church. So if the dad of the two code-compliant toddlers is listening and it was him who took his two boys to see Despicable Me 3 on the 8th of July, can you tell us how you got them to be so well-behaved? Anyway, thank you for reading this and give my mum a big what's up. Anyway, thank you, Eleanor Moody. So, I don't know, it's a little bit vague because I haven't got... I don't know which part of the country this is from or what cinema it is. We do need to be specific. that Actually, laughing is not in violation of the code. You can Um, laugh as much as you want. want. And, in fact, there is a film, which we're going to review later on today, in which I did laugh so loudly in the screening... Amidst the you know other critics that I started to I wanted to stop because I thought I was making I was making them annoyed and then the more I wanted to stop the more the louder I laughed. One query before we do the box office top ten. <laughs> mm-hmm. Simon in Bristol wants to know: Is there a dress code component to the code of conduct? It has been swelteringly hot here, so shorts, t-shirt, flip-flops have been the only reasonable attire. Now, as as I get ready to depart at seven o'clock in the evening, it remains very warm and muggy, so I have little desire to waste precious energy on changing clothes and don't much fancy overheating. However, I do maintain that any cinema trip is a special occasion, especially for me now that they've become so rare. Should I pull myself together and get into a pair of cotton slacks and a linen shirt? Will I offend my fellow cinema goers if I don't? What is the thing? What is the bare minimum of clothing, except within cinema areas? Well, I would say cotton slacks and linen shirt is pretty much the bare minimum. Can I go in shorts and a T-shirt? Well, you can Can go in a bikini. (laughs) And a mankini. You can do, but, I mean, would would one want to? I mean, I'm thinking about... No, actually... I don't know that I'd want to sit in a cinema seat in shorts. It's sort of uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, you never know whose sweaty thighs have been there just <laughs> exactly. before. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm saying for gentlemen, long trousers and a shirt. And for ladies, please take care of your hat. It's like, it's like going around the Vatican. You have to have the same, <laughs> the right. same... Assume you're going around St Peter's. That's what you have to do. It's a temple. That's what we're saying. It is. Box office top ten. Uh, in order, then, obviously. Uh, at number ten, all eyes on me. Disappointing. And uh, with uh, live performances apparently shot in buttons. Uh, Wonder Woman's at nine. I'm really pleased at how well Wonder Woman is doing. And uh, I was just doing my top ten films of the year so far, and I'm happy to say that Wonder Woman has made it into that top ten. I was off the week that it came out, and so I didn't get to do the review. I think uh, Robbie did it. And uh, I really like it. I, and I, I, the, one of the great things is I've been getting loads of tweets from people who've been to see it, you know, because it's really held on in there. And I have not yet had a response to somebody who saw it and, and thought it was underwhelming. Everyone's really enjoyed it. Uh, number eight is Jagger's Jesus, which you haven't seen. Nope. But uh, fortunately, Dhruv Krishna Goyal has seen it for you. OK. And passes this on. Um, the good doctor said for Scorsese's silence that it was a labour of love, which yes. was both laborious and loving. 
I felt exactly the same. Uh, yeah, can you say how very well put that Anurag was by me? Basu's Jagger Jesus. The film's overlong, the screenplay's at times unfocused and massively overstuffed, but the film seriously won me over with its stunning visuals, terrific editing and brilliant central performance from Rambir Kapoor. It's a one-of-a-kind from Bollywood that uses music in a way a little similar to how Edgar Wright uses music in Baby Driver, and for its uniqueness, it ought to be applauded and seen. Fantastic. I mean, again, I I really look forward to the point when these films are press-screened uh, in advance so that we can review them. Uh, Transformers is at seven. Da, 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 da. The Beguiled is at number six. Now, this has become the subject of much debate, and um, a, a lot of people have really disliked The Beguiled, and a lot of people have thought, you know, oh, it, it, it's really interesting. Sofia Coppola won the Best Director Award at Cannes. I think she was only the second woman ever to do so. The thing which seems to be the dividing point is how recently you've seen the Don Siegel beguiled. Because most people have never seen it. I don't know that most people have never seen yeah, it. Yeah, most people have never seen it. I'm um, speaking now on behalf of everybody. Okay, I mean, a few people have seen it. Okay, if you're, I mean, if you're. Well, the first thing I'd say is if you haven't seen it, do. And, you, you know, I've, I know for a fact that you can, you can buy it from streaming services for £2.99 or whatever it is because I went back to watch it again when I was doing the Sofia Coppola. And I watched the Coppola and I, you know, I liked it. I thought it was a, a lot to like about it. And then I watched The Seagull and I was very aware of all the things that, that I really like about The Seagull because I, I haven't seen The Seagull since I was, in, you know, in Manchester in the 1980s when I saw it with Arnold. And... Um, uh, and I, it is definitely true that there are things that have gone from the seagull that are puzzling omissions. And most problematic is the removal of the May Mercer character, who is this very strong African-American presence who, although defined in the original as a slave, is anything but and is, the, is this really, really you know feisty and strong presence in the film. And I think it's a shame that we don't have a comparable character in the new film. I do think, however, that there are some great performances in the new film. It looks absolutely lovely. I mean, it looks really beautiful. It looks like all Coppola movies. It has that sort of dreamy timelessness. It is true that all her films exist in a bubble. They appear to exist, you know, outside of you know ongoing society they are apolitical with a capital a um and there are some i think colin farrell incidentally is really terrific as well and you very much enjoyed talking to sophie a couple of yeah about i mean you can you can still hear that interview which is uh part of last week's yeah. show and you i mean she she right? says in it that the, the, the you know that what she didn't want to do was she didn't want to depict slavery on screen because she didn't want to trivialize the subject i think that that is a cop-out but you did raise it with her and i think you you were right to do so because it is important having a, but also the reason that's given in the movie they said all the slaves have, have, have run away. All the slaves, have, no, the slaves all left. The slave, yeah, they've all, they all left. Kind of works, I think. It does exp- I don't. I wasn't sitting there thinking that it, they were missing. Anyway, I hadn't seen the first Okay, can I, can I ask you to do something seriously? Over the, the cruise period... Oh, well, try, we could do a screen. Try, yeah. yeah, try and watch. The, the Don Siegel version of The Beguiled is really... I mean, yes, it's an exploitation movie and it's ripe and it's got huge amounts of things that are really raw in it but it is a very fine film. Michael, on this email, this comment might reflect badly on me, but I, ex- I expected and wanted more sex and violence from The Beguiled. Mm-hmm. This film had no sharp edges, and I think it needed them. Much as I like Colin Farrell, in my eyes, he's never been a dangerous on-screen presence. With a more threatening male lead, The Beguiled might have been more beguiling. As it was, Sofia Coppola's latest film was elegantly staged, well-acted, skillfully written, but the piece struck me as somewhat restrained and lightweight. I don't... Uh, here's an interesting thing. Yeah. I don't understand why this 
film earned a 15 rating. Thematically, Wuftpoter carried much more doom and threat, and that was a 12A. I had no idea. The Beg- I'd have guessed the Begard was a 12A, but apparently it's a 15. Um, it might be all the elaborate sponging sequences that Nicole Kidman gets involved with, but that is just sponging. There is... Well, it's, 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 there's quite a graphic leg break, isn't there? Yeah, but you can... You can get away with a graphic leg break in a 12. Anyways, interesting okay, yeah. um, interesting uh, query. Yes. Uh, so the Bigard is at six. Baby Driver's at five. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Cars 3 is at four. Didn't love it, 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 didn't love it. Chris Knight. Um, I took my four-year-old daughter to see Cars 3 at the weekend. Having enjoyed the first one at home, she was very excited to see the new Lightning McQueen adventure and what would be a, her second cinema trip. While I thought the film was okay, a story being past your prime and outgunned by youngsters somehow struck a chord. I turned to my daughter as the credits rolled and asked if she liked it. She just looked at me and said, not really. And I think that sums it up. About 40 minutes in, she became very fidgety and clearly didn't find it engaging. Okay. Neil and Seth Sugden in Troon. It would be fair to say that my youngest son is the biggest Lightning McQueen fan in the world. For the past three years, wherever he goes, there will be a miniature car in his hand. And as for his clothes, if it's not cars-related, don't even think about it. We've been <laughs> eagerly awaiting the trailers as they become available, with my son telling anyone around <clears throat> excuse me, that Jackson Storm is Lightning's rival. When the big day finally arrived, with our pre-booked tickets for the multiplex of our choice, we headed along. Both boys uh, were excited. It would be fair to say that his mum and I were equally enthusiastic about the film. As for the contents, it easily passed the six-laugh test. It had everything that we could have hoped for. Uh, there were also tears when lightning crashed, which was slightly surprising as we'd been watching said scene for the previous six months. A great day was had, uh, and the boys and parents stuck to all the cinema codes when his cars fall out. So they're an unadulterated... And I have heard many people have exactly the same reaction to it, so, you know... And just one more. Debbie Patterson. Yesterday, whilst babysitting my five-year-old niece, I decided to take her to Cars 3 to pass a couple of hours. Okay. Yes. My review is as follows. Okay. Three toilet visits, shoes off, followed by socks off. Cardigan off, on, off, on, back to front, off again. (laughs) Bag of popcorn, bag of grapes, mini bag of cookies and bottle of squash consumed. We were sat alone in an elevated front row, so she tried out three different seats, finally settling on the floor with her legs hanging through the railings. (laughs) I chuckled once. Many apologies for all the code violations, but I will endeavour to educate her in the ways of the church. Well, as we've mentioned before, Debbie, Mark and I would disagree with this. If you're on your own, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we do disagree on this. I think being on your own doesn't make any difference. Uh, Of course it does. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Spider-Man is at number three. Which is much more fun than I thought, and... When I went into it, I did Jeff definitely go in thinking, who needs another Spider-Man movie? And the answer turned out to be me. Oh, that's it. Oh, sorry, no, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm aware no, that no, time no, is... No, abso- absolutely, you're, you're super brief. And Seb has... And that's it. not a phrase that you've no. used in the past. Sebastian Ellis is 13 years old. Did okay. you know that? Is, I didn't, know. Sebastian is 13. That's great. My first time writing uh, to you, my dad and I are avid listeners to the show, and we listen to it all the time. But since my dad lives in Sweden and my mum lives in England, it's hard to know... When the other is listening, but we are when we are together, things are so much more fun. So hopefully, when this is read out, we will be together because uh, I am seeing him soon. Um, last Sunday, my grandparents took us to see Spider-Man: Homecoming. I was a 
cautious since I've just seen Despicable Me 3, which let me down a bit because I felt something more could have been done. Okay. But as I came well, I out laughed of, all the way through Despicable Me 3. I, I really enjoyed it. As I came out in the cinema, I was so happy I'd seen it. It was a great cinematic experience with great actors, an amazing bad guy with a great backstory. Sebastian Ellis, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Despicable Me 3 is at number two. And I... You know, I laughed all the way through. And this is what you, you question when somebody said that, you know, I loved it as much as Mark loved it. I did. Um, I mean, I do think it is true that narratively, at the point at which you're, you know, you're bringing in twin brothers and, you know, it feels like the narrative may run out of steam, but it's the minion. And it's not... The, and we, again, we'll discover this today with Captain Underpants. You know, toilet humour, if it's done funny, is very is very funny. And knockabout slapstick, if it's done funny, is very funny. It's very hard to do it properly. But the, the minions to me are the modern day slapstick equivalent of Chaplin and Keaton. And uh, and I could just watch them endlessly. Um, just before we get to the uh, the number one, just a reminder that because we've got a shortened show, uh, yeah. you, there is a shortened version of the conversation with Chris Nolan coming up the other side of the news and sport. Yes, and we'll talk about Dunkirk um, after one thirty. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, there's 15 minutes with Chris Nolan, and I have to tell you, he's one of those people. If you had half an hour, it wouldn't be long enough because no. there is so much to talk about when it gets to Dunkirk. We will do as much as we can in our shortened program. He is a pick brilliant, it all yeah, up, absolutely. Uh, a little bit later on. Anyway, the number one movie is, of course, War for the Planet of the Apes. And I was very, I was very impressed by this. Um, uh, firstly, the most remarkable thing is that in not just in our lifetime, but in the time that we've been doing a movie review show. Um, we've gone from the beginning of performance capture to the point when we now have War for the Planet of the Apes and you're watching Andy Serkis performing as Caesar and you're no longer even seeing the, the digital imagery. You're just thinking, that's a great performance by Andy Serkis. I remember you and I having a conversation in which I was going, what do you mean he is Gollum? I mean, God, but Gollum's a... What? I don't... You know, and then watching the behind-the-scenes video and for the first time seeing performance capture and going, really? Wow. You know, I, I'm astonished. Now we just take it for granted. And, you know, Andy Serkis did talk about this very early on, but it's just acting with, you know, with different costumes, different techniques. And obviously the technical side of it, it is absolute perfect meld of performance skill and technical wizardry. And I'm not the first person to say it. I think he should be nominated. I think he deserves a nomination because he is he's at the forefront of this thing which has changed the face of cinema, you know, much more so than this idea about, you know, resurrecting stars who have passed away by getting their, you know, sort of digital cinema. This is the, this is the you know, the new emergent cinematic form. Circus is at the front of it and I think he's brilliant. The film itself, I think, is good and solid and impressively dark, considering that it is a blockbuster movie that is currently at number one. Um this is not the kind of uh, stuff that you normally expect from this kind of uh, franchise, but I think they've done it very well. I, the only thing I'd like to say is I would still like to fly the flag for the original Planet of the Apes movies, which are better than people have given them credit for. Uh, it was a great... Uh, Andy, uh, Andy Serkis did a great uh, appearance on one of those American talk shows where he reads the tweets of Donald Which Trump... Which is absolutely... In the voice of Gollum. The, it is brilliant, Look it isn't up. it? It is just genius. Alan McClarty from Coleraine. Wow, what a, an experience. War for Planet of the Apes was. I have never been so moved by performances that were motion-captured. Andy Serkis definitely deserves recognition for the work he's done. Hopefully, BAFTA or the Academy will see fit to do so. Special shout-out to Steve Zahn. I think Bad Ape is one of my favourite movies movie characters yeah. in recent years. He is a really great character. And, and 
that you know I was talking before about the darkness and having a certain amount of comic relief it's the sort of it's the absolute epitome of pathos and he does bring all of that to it pathos is the thing that he brings to that role and that's something which is very difficult to do and he does it brilliantly and Daniel Thorpe says uh, pleasantly surprised with how much I liked War for Planet of the Apes I enjoyed both Rise and Dawn but not to the extent that I have gone back for repeat viewings and having War in the title definitely seemed like an ominous sign I was expecting this to be the point where the series ran out of steam and it was reduced to relying on long action sequences. But instead, I completely agree with Mark in that the acting of Andy Serkis is absolutely at the centre of this movie. I do, however, also agree with Simon, this is a nicely balanced email, uh, that one thing holding the movie back is how Woody Harrelson's character is overplayed. Uh, Daniel Thorpe, thank you very much indeed. So it's 12.26... Uh, this is Five Live. We have a shortened version because of the golf. All the coverage coming back at two o'clock. Um, so we'll start the reviews now and then we'll talk Dunkirk, the other side of the news. Okay. Tell us something that's brand new. So City of Ghosts, which is a documentary by uh, Matthew Heineman, who made Cartel Land, which I thought is an extraordinary work. And it is about um, this basically citizens journalist collective, a citizens reporting collective. Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. This is an 18th certificate documentary which contains some really genuinely... Uh, harrowing uh, imagery, which I should say from the beginning, if you go to the BBFC site, it says strong images of real killings and dead bodies. And there were certainly moments in the documentary in which I just felt that I had to look away. Um, But essentially what it's doing is it's looking um, at what happened, you know, there's power vacuum and, you know, ISIS, and then it's citizens documenting what life is like under ISIS and this extraordinary catalogue of just unbelievable atrocity, but counterpointed against the bravery, the strength, the resourcefulness of those people who decided that what they were going to do was to take it upon themselves to let the world know what was happening. And so they set up this... um, this sort of, you know, uh, informal collective. They started using their smartphones and uh, the internet to get these uh, images out to, uh, you know, to, to, to start to, point, to paint a truthful portrait of what was actually going on. Inevitably, they started to receive death threats and they started to uh, lose people close to them and they were driven to Germany where the fight continues. And the film contains, uh, you know, many images which they had documented. It also uh, uh, absolutely horrifyingly reveals the sort of strange, glossy cinematic techniques used by the by ISIS in their own uh, videos in a way which is really, really sort of very, very distressing and very, very upsetting. The film begins and ends with these remarkably brave people at an awards ceremony in which they are being honoured for their achievement. And at the beginning, we see one of them being asked by a photographer, you know, smile, come on, give us a smile. And then we see the documentary. And, of course, you know, inevitably, during the course of the documentary, you come back towards this moment and you realise, you know, there's just, even you see it at the beginning, just the absolute facileness of saying to people who have experienced this kind of thing, come on, smile. But what the film does do is it does create a very, very strong portrait of people behaving quite heroically in the face of, you know, appalling circumstances. And it demonstrates a sort of, you know, eye-level journalism, which particularly, you know, with 
people talking about, you know, what's true and what isn't true and, you know, what we know about and what we don't know about. This seems to be a really, really extraordinary case of people risking everything to get the truth out there. As I said, there were several times during the course of the film in which I just found myself looking away. But um, it is a really remarkable piece of work. It is a, an 18th certificate documentary and, and not surprising. And it is called City of Ghosts. Uh, so we have half an hour left. So obviously we're going to be yep. uh, talking Dunkirk very shortly. Every, every single piece of correspondence that I got lined up as a review yes. comes from overseas. Okay, great. So it's almost so it's almost it's almost <laughs> as though the country that this applies to the most, you could say, uh, is the country that's had it last. Anyway, so okay. we'll get to as many reviews as we possibly can. If you've seen it, you can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. And the other side of the news and sport, uh, you'll hear our conversation with Christopher Nolan. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Um, I think this is, I might have told you this last time, but it's sort of unscientific. But I think if I could take a poll of all the listeners to this program, their favourite film director, I think you would be number one. So oh. therefore, a new Chris Nolan film is something which is genuinely, it's that sense of Christmas Eve. You know, it's the sense of anticipation is palpable. No pressure. <laughs> Absolutely none. And when we did this interview last time around for Interstellar, mm. Listeners would not have been a part of this process because you stopped the interview because the noise coming from next door was so extraordinary that you thought, this is so distracting, I'm going to stop. And it turned out it was Anne Hathaway <laughs> who was just laughing so much. I was giving an interview. Don't start any rumours here. It was Anne oh, yeah. doing, doing an interview in the next she was door just room. In, yeah, OK. No, she was just enjoying an, uh, an interview. Anyway, it's, it's fantastic to have you uh, back on the show. How long has telling the Dunkirk story been part of your mind i mean a long time uh i think like most british people that grew up with the story i don't even remember the first time you know somebody told me about the events of dunkirk um but a key moment in, in me wanting to make the film was about 20 years ago uh, emma my my wife and producer uh and i we uh hitched a ride on a friend's boat who was he wanted to make the crossing on his small sailboat the crossing to dunkirk at about the same time of year the evacuation had taken place and we underestimated the difficulty of it. it was, the channel was very rough. It was extremely cold, very challenging physically. Uh, the crossing took a lot longer than it should have. It took about 19 hours. And it felt dangerous. It felt difficult. I mean, really difficult. And I came away from that experience with an extraordinary admiration and respect for people who made that journey in 1940 into a war zone. I mean, people dropping bombs on them. Making that crossing really cemented for me a fascination with with the story and started me asking the question as to why in modern cinema has this never been addressed, even though I think it's one of the great stories in, in human history. And what was the answer to that? I think the answer to it is it's a British subject that requires an American budget. And I found myself in, in a position a couple of years ago where I developed a very good relationship with the Hollywood studios, with Warner Brothers in particular, there's a lot of trust on both sides. And I found myself able to, to come to them and say, look, you may not know this story. This is a British story, uh, beloved in the culture of Britain. People talk about the Dunkirk spirit and so forth. But I think it's one of the great universal stories. And I think if we can cast it with unknowns at the center of it, if we can really give the audience the experience of being there, really, really tell this in a suspenseful manner, because I see it as one of the great suspense stories of all time. 
hopefully we can make something that can play internationally, that could be universal, that could speak to an American audience as well as a British audience. Because it's a survival story. It's a survival tale, and it's an incredibly primal and fundamental story. The geography of the story, if you like, is very simple. 400,000 men on a beach, their backs to the sea, the enemy closing in on all sides, in sight of home practically, but no way to get there. And they're faced with the choice between surrender or annihilation. And the fact that this story does not end in either surrender or annihilation is why it's one of the greatest stories in human history. And having decided that you wanted, that you were fascinated, and that you had, the, you had interest and you had the budget, how long did it take you to work out what kind of film to make and which stories you were going to tell? Because Dunkirk mm. is, has got thousands of stories. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, there are myriad stories, uh, and it's tough to know where to start. There are so many different versions of this film that could have been made over the years. There are many different versions that, that I might have tried. Um, but in the end, what I settled on is what I think is most vibrant about films these days, which is what I call a cinema of experience. I really wanted to tell the story subjectively. I immersed myself in first-hand accounts. I uh, brought on Joshua Levine as a historical consultant. He's a historian who compiled a, a book of first-hand accounts of people who were really there. And what I wound up doing was researching the history, getting the evacuation and the events of the evacuation sort of in my bones, if you like, kind of under my fingers. And then I created a fictional set of characters to guide the audience through the events. And I divided my telling of the story into three main strands, broadly speaking, land, sea, and air. And the reason I did this is I wanted to tell everything in a subjective way. I wanted the audience to have an incredibly suspenseful and intense experience and really feel that they're there on the beach, really feel that they're there in the, in the cockpit of a Spitfire really feel that they're on a boat coming over to, to help with the evacuation. So rather than cutting to generals in rooms or politicians explaining things, I wanted to stay with a human scale of storytelling, but use these different perspectives to gradually build up a larger picture of the events. This has been, it was someone else's um, obser observation. When I came out of the film, I, I wanted to go straight back in and see it again. Mm. Uh, that was That was my first reaction because you had... You had told this astonishing story and what you'd done. I mean, I felt as though I'd been, it is a visceral uh, experience. It's, you know, if you see it projected properly and with a great sound system, I saw it in IMAX, mm -hmm. as I think you should uh, see it. It's, uh, it will blow you away for a couple of hours. And yet it is so much a silent film. It is, it feels in, at times like a silent picture. The, the dialogue is not up front and center here. No, I'm, I'm a great admirer of, of the silent era. And, and as a filmmaker, to go back and draw inspiration from it is wonderful because it's a completely different way of telling stories before dialogue came along. And so it, it can be very inspiring. It can make you think about things in a slightly different way. And as we thought about, okay, what's the right telling for this story? I kept coming back to the language of suspense. I was looking at the cinema of Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Clouseau, uh, Wages of Fear, in particular the French film from the 50s was, was a big influence. But the thing about suspense is it's primarily visual. And if you look at Hitchcock, it's, it's very much visual storytelling. And so I really wanted to try and strip away the usual theatrics. Uh, and I don't mean that, you know, when you we talk about dialogue and the way people uh, put things in the mouths of characters, that, that's the way I've been making films for many years, and I'm sure I'll go back to it. But for this film... I felt like I wanted to create a film where 
you didn't care about the characters on screen because they were telling you who they were and why you should care about them or making the case for why you care about them. I wanted to just care about them using that wonderful thing about cinema that's very unique to cinema, which Hitchcock understood better than anybody, which is you'll care about a character on screen because of their physical dilemma, because of a task they're trying to accomplish, because you fear for their physical safety, because you wouldn't want to be in their position. And so... I really wanted to very deliberately put the audience into the shoes of the characters on screen and create empathy that way in what I call the present tense. Not worrying about who they are or whether they've got a girlfriend back home or whatever, you know, the the usual cinematic devices. Um, I wanted to strip all that away and make a very, very kind of lean, suspense-driven story. And part of that suspense comes, again, from the astonishing music of Hans Zimmer, mm. which uh, one of the reasons why you'll, you'll leave after a couple of hours utterly, utterly drained is the astonishing score. I mean, I, I've listened to the few tracks that are still that are out already mm. that you can hear, and I was immediately back in, the, back in the cinema and really stressed out. Can you explain, in your words, Chris, what, what he brings to your movies and why you go back to him? Well, Hans has brought many different things to the, the films that I've, I've worked on with him uh, in many different ways. This film was a little different in that we knew right from script stage, I'd written the script according to certain musical principles of structure. You Primarily, uh, I think, all the Shepherd tone, which I'd first explored in music with David Julian, the composer on The Prestige. And it's, it's a sort of audio illusion whereby pitch is continually ascending but never goes out of the range. So it's constantly ascending. And I wanted to actually write the script and see if I could do that in words. So create a story that was always getting more intense, always getting more intense. And so that's how the the three storylines are braided together. And early on, I went to Hans and showed him the script and said, I've written it according to this structure. We need a rhythmical structure for the music that we're going to build out of this sound. And I gave him a recording I had made of of a watch that I had with a particularly insistent ticking. And what I asked him to do, and, and he did along with his team, and there were a lot of people involved in this uh, that, that he brought on, to create a sort of rhythmic equivalent of the written narrative. So as we were cutting picture, um, a lot of this work was done before we even started filming, but as we were cutting picture, we would layer in these tracks he would give us and gradually build up a relationship between the music track, the sound effects, and the picture. And in this way for better or for worse, it's not for me to say, but, but we've, we've created a fusion of music, sound effects and picture that we've never been able to achieve before. Well, I mean, I think it's an astonishing success. I think it was fabulous. I want to do some listeners' questions in just a moment. Can I just mention two of the actors? I want to mention Tom Hardy's eyes, which are required to work harder than his eyes have ever been asked to work before. Can you just explain a, a little bit why? Well, you know, I made... Uh, Dark Knight Rises with Tom, with his face almost completely covered. And I was so amazed by what he was able to, to achieve with, with just his eyes um, <laughs> that when it, when it came time to cast this Spitfire pilot, um, and I didn't want to do what they used to do in old movies, which is every time you know they need to see the actor, he would sort of pull his oxygen mask off, which isn't how you know these pilots really flew. They would have their gear on the whole time once it went on. And... Um, I knew that Tom, having worked with him with, a, with his face almost completely obscured, 
Uh, I knew that he'd rise to the challenge of covering up even more of his face. <laughs> you talk about his eyes. I think there's one key moment in the film where you can really only see one of his eyes. And what he's able to do with that one eye is more than more than most actors could do yeah, with their whole it, bodies. It's a masterclass. Was there any point, Chris, in the filming when you had, I think at one stage you had 62 ships mm. um, that you were working with because you and you work you know you're working with real ships and real planes and actors in the planes and you've got the cameras in the planes was there any point where you thought i wonder if i've chosen the right method have <laughs> i have i actually bitten off too much here i think you know, when you look at the logistical challenges of the film trying to do things for real um we've got thousands of extras on that beach but i've done that kind of thing before we've got very very uh, complex aerial unit photography but I've done that before as well. Not to this extent. Not, not, we pushed that a lot further than we ever have. But I had some grounding in it. What I'd never done before is boats. And to sort of go in with what I'm told is the largest marine unit in, in movie history, uh, that was very daunting. And the sheer challenge of trying to orient the boats, get them in the right place at the right time for the shot with that many vehicles, um, it's, it's difficult very difficult um, but I had a great team of, of people who came together there was a lot of planning that went into it and it felt worth that extra effort you know when you get to moments where you see the little ships participating in the evacuation and you realize those are the real little ships who actually did it in 1940 and they've come back across the channel for us to make that journey recreate that journey for our cameras uh, that compared with the the CG alternative or whatever, it makes it all worthwhile. Um, but it was certainly challenging. A couple of listeners' questions before we finish. Richard Holiday, could this be the first in a series of World War II films? Battle of Britain is crying out for a modern interpretation. Plus, it might remind Steven Spielberg that Britain was actually involved in the Second World War, if we forget that second bit particularly. But, the, but you're right, that same spirit that you're, that you're talking about, about Dunkirk, about stories that are waiting to be told again. It's longer ago that the story of Dunkirk's been told in, in films, and so I think it was, it's the more uh, egregious sort of omission in a way. But at the same time, I don't want to give away too much about the film, but the, there is the sense in which Dunkirk plays as prologue to the Second World War. There is a very real sense in which at the end of the film you feel that you're at the beginning of something, you're at the start of something. And I feel that that's a rhythm that modern filmgoers, younger filmgoers, are very, very familiar with. Um, I mean, frankly, just looking at all different types of films that try to sort of build a world or try to build the potential for sequels or all the rest. We wanted to tap into some of that energy for the end of the film and sort of remind people of, like, this was just the beginning of a, of a massively uh, long and arduous process. Um, so the film is complete in itself, but, but it certainly, um, certainly doesn't, doesn't shy away from the fact that this is the very beginning of World War II. And was it at any stage useful to have a, a, a director with the experience of Ken Branagh, who you, who you put at the end of a pier, um, for, you know, I'm sure he could give you sort of some fine support there, just say, it's fine, I understand what you're going through, I'll oh, just stay much. here, don't, 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 don't worry about me. Very much, no, he, uh, he had a very long walk off, mercifully a very long pier, but uh, we were stuck at the end of that thing out in the weather, and having uh, a fantastic actor but also a fantastic actor who's a brilliant director as well, uh, who completely understands what I'm up against and is looking at all the elements. He was a huge asset, and I, I can't say enough great things about him. I'd wanted to work with him for a long time. I was a little bit daunted working with you know, such a great director as well, but he was uh, wonderful to work with and a, and a huge help. Dare I ask you what your challenge to do next? I have no idea. Go on holiday. I'm, I'm terrible at doing more than one thing at a time, so 
when I get into a film, I just spend a couple of years totally in that movie. And the movie isn't finished for me until it goes out to its audience and they tell me what it is I've done. Well, I think it's 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 a wonderful achievement. Uh, and Chris, we appreciate you always coming on the show. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Christopher Nolan talking about Dunkirk. Uh, if you do have uh, a moment to download or listen to the full the long version, version. Uh, one, of the, one of the great joys about it was, uh, and anyone who goes to see Dunkirk will notice the Hans Zimmer soundtrack. He's worked with Hans Zimmer again. It's cool. Yeah. Which is it's just a, uh, astonishing. And one of the reasons why you're completely... Uh, exhausted at the end is is part of the hands in my conversation anyway uh, the full version uh, will be on uh, the podcast which is uh, available uh, very shortly after we've finished uh, the program uh, we've got plenty of reviews but mark goes first well let's start with with that hands in because there's um there's a moment on the beach in which you get this kind of staccato this kind of metronomic thing which starts to build tension okay this is quite fairly early on in the film and you think okay we're built this is building tension and in that interview chris Nolan talked about uh, being tension being the main thing he's referred to uh, as wages of fear which of course was remade by freaking a sorcerer as this kind of exercise intention and you hear this scogging doing this thing this kind of ticking thing and you think okay this is building up to a thing what's incredible about the film is that that then builds pretty much constantly for the rest of the movie i think the score is an astonishing piece of work these growls which match with the sounds of the boats of the engines of the bombs of the boots on the ground these elegiac suspensions that sort of that strange gap between bad lamenting on the one hand and Elgar on the other hand this uh, sort of sense of the whole thing having a mournful quality to it because although it is very very tense it is a mournful film it is a film that is somber and and uh, you know and seriousness it is a film um, about uh, you know a victory being snatched from the jaws of defeat in a in a very very sort of strange way and it is as he said before a british story i mean of course it has been addressed before in cinema in various different versions you know whether it's mrs miniver or dunkirk or um you know or even recently uh, their finest with that you know would somebody get mr hilliard out of dunkirk um i think from a cinematic point of view there is nobody working in cinema at the moment who is quite the the great champion of cinematic formats as uh, Christopher Nolan is, you know, shooting this in this, in, using these very, very large cameras, hats off to Hoyt van Hoytema, his uh, cinematographer. If you look at any of the behind the scenes footage of them lugging around these bulky, you know, large format cameras. So you're getting kind of, you know, sort of handheld dexterity and these periscope lenses used to capture the images in crystal clear format so that when you see them on the screen, you just go, it is virtual reality without the goggles. I want I mean, to get an IMAX camera in a Spitfire. In a Spitfire. How can we do that? So, for, I mean, and what's really impressive is that I, as you did, saw it in um, the BFI uh, IMAX 70mm. So there are, you know, so the, the, the screen stretching beyond the horizons of your field of vision. And um, as a cinematic spectacle, it is superb. But it's not just spectacle for the sake of spectacle. One of the things that is important to say about it is that it has this triptych narrative, three narratives, broadly speaking, land, sea, air. Um, and what it does is it also intertwines three time periods, one week, one day, one hour, which it interweaves throughout the film in a way which is every bit as complex and uh, dexterous and clever, although not self-consciously clever, as 
you know, the time twists and reversals and, you know, lengthenings of Inception or of Interstellar or going back earlier into Chris Nolan's career, Memento, because he's always been fascinated by the idea of the flexibility of time. And although this is telling a fairly straightforward story and attempting very clearly not to want to play games with the audience. It does that thing that I've always said about Chris Nolan that I wrote about in a book some years ago and that I will stand by to this day. Christopher Nolan imagines that the audience is smart enough to keep up. And you know what? They are. He makes blockbusters that do not do what Michael Bay thinks you have to do, (coughs) which is to have Anthony Hopkins stand around and explain the plot. He makes films which have interlocking, you know, strange crystalline structures that the audience just does understand, even peculiarly enough, if they don't realise that that's what they're doing at the time. I mean, I've spoken to people afterwards about, you know, the way in which those time structures interlock in Dunkirk, and they've said, yeah, I, I really didn't notice. I mean, I know that it flagged up one week, one day, one hour, but I, I just, you know, it, I, it made sense. The other thing is I think the, the relevance of silent cinema seems <clears throat> unusual with a film which is so loud with a film in which so much of what is happening is to do with the I mean you know the growling basically make sure you see it in a place that's got a good sound system um but it's the imagery the dialogue is very minimal the dialogue sometimes I have to say is one of the the false steps I think there are a couple of moments of clunkiness but they're these are very sort of minor quibbles but it's the silent cinema stuff it's the stuff that makes you think okay well that, that owes more to Napoleon than it does to Battle of Britain, for example. And, um, you know, it's visual storytelling. It's understanding that cinema is a universal language and that often dialogue is the thing which serves it the least well. I know in the past some people have worried that Nolan um, can seem uh, clinical, that he can seem... It's almost like the technical... This was something that was always said about Stanley Kubrick, was the technical wizardry was so extraordinary that you almost felt that it was that, that the films were cold. And in the case of Kubrick, I, I do feel that. In the case of Nolan, I don't. Um, I've never felt disconnected from his characters. And in the case of this, we have, you know, these sort of vignette human stories, these different people whose lives you follow, whose, you know, as they intertwine. And I never felt that it was in any way uh, dispassionate. In fact, the the greatest credit to the film is that for a film with so many really striking, outstanding moments of visual grandeur, the things that I remember are the expression on Kenneth Branagh's face as he looks out to Horizon, the look on the soldiers' faces as they watch somebody walking hopelessly into the sea, the the small moments, the moments which remind you that this is a mournful story amidst the spectacle. Um, it's very impressive to take a film with a canvas that's that big, that tall, that wide, that broad, and actually bring it down to those moments in the end. Um, everyone will have to make their, their own decision about the best way to see the film. I'm introducing a 35mm print of it on Saturday. I saw it in, you know, IMAX, super gargantuan, you know, look at, look at the size of that. And uh, and I'm fascinated to see it again in other formats. Um I thought it was a really impressive piece of work. And, uh, but for me, I still think, you know, I will always hold Inception and Batman Begins as very, very special places um, in my heart. But, you know, this, this, this is what blockbuster... Bring me back to a point I made several... This is what blockbuster cinema can look like. If you can make blockbusters that look like this, why would you not... 
a question from Jack Fulber in Bristol. I'm yes. considering taking my 10-year-old Louis uh, to see Dunkirk. It's a hugely important part of our history, and I want him to experience it. Do you have any thoughts on this that you could share on the show? Well, it's a 12A, <laughs> so that's perfectly fine. And Jack, is, as we always say, first of all, it's up to you. You yeah. know you're somebody than anyone else. Look at the BBFC uh, advice. But in general, I would say yes, in as much as it's not... This it's isn't not, it's like not saving, saving Private Ryan. It's not that. So it's it, very different to yeah, that. It isn't, it isn't particularly... It's very upsetting, but it isn't gory in the way that first... No, I mean, as Chris Vaughan was saying in that interview, it's about tension rather than, uh, rather than you know, showing uh, you know, gore. I mean, you, there you, get, you do get the sense of real endangerment and real tragedy... But what you, but it's done in a way which is oddly, and this sounds like a strange thing to say, but it's oddly visually discreet. That said, it is an overwhelming experience, and so it's one of those things that, even though you know the film may be discreet to some extent, it is. It's a very powerful film. Kit Chapman, um, my parents and grandfather all served in the Royal Navy. My grandfather was always stoic and reserved, yet my mother told me that every time he watched The Cruel Sea, he would burst into tears. Mm -hmm. My father served in the Falklands conflict and never really spoke about what he saw. I never really understood that until I saw Dunkirk. It is a gut punch of a movie, harrowing and vicious. It treats its characters with capricious malevolence, so their fates are always uncertain, with its hellish score constantly ticking away in the background... Ticking away, yes. ...to underline the impending doom. It is a movie of dread, a movie of uneasy stillness and a movie that demands your attention and respect. It is a movie so good that I don't know if I can watch it again, but I'm certain it will never leave me. How about that? How eloquently expressed. Uh, Dr Gregory Carter. Um, This morning I saw Dunkirk. It is searingly brilliant, relentlessly brutal. Uh, I I suppose this is all part of the answer to Jack Fulbright. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you take your boy to Exactly. Um, a horror film in all but name, except depicting real events. Harry Styles and Tom Glynn Carney are revelations. They're both the uh, part of the soldiers on the beach. Sir Mark Rylance and Sir Chuckles are not, but only in the sense that they are as brilliant as ever. Ditto Tom Hardy, who has Oscar-worthy eyebrows, <laughs> which is very true. His eyes work amazingly hard. Uh, Hoyt van Hoytemers, is that right? Yeah, Hoyt van Hoytemers. Uh, cinematography and Richard King's sound design are flawless. The juxtaposition between the strains of Elgar in one scene, the boats arriving, and what follows said scene is extraordinary. The sounds of aortic pulsation, thank you, Dr. Gregory, the ticking clock so well used, the sound of the Merlin engine so evocative. This is a work of art from a master craftsman, also a fitting reminder of what we owe our forebears. Very good. And again, how beautifully written. Um, Ben says, last night I watched Dunkirk on an IMAX screen here in Geneva. Before I went, I have to admit I was curious to see how busy it would be given the international appeal of the events it covers aren't exactly obvious. Now, the cinema wasn't completely full given it's the first day of release, but it was pretty busy. There was even a round of applause at the end of the film. Anyway, I thought it was an amazing film. The Hans Zimmer score alone was enough to convey an almost unbearable feeling of peril. I don't think I've ever been so affected by a soundtrack in a cinema. Can I say that, that on the subject of the round of applause... I burst into applause at the end of seeing it um, uh, in the screening. I was in, then everybody else did as well. Yes. But, uh, but fact, it was it just ben, felt. Ben says in the email, I don't know why people applaud at the end of a film because they can't hear. No, but it, it doesn't matter. It's you know, it's, it's for you. You're yeah, doing it. Yeah, exactly. That was it. It was almost involuntary. Um, Neil, uh, who's in Nice, uh, I managed to catch a screening of Dunkirk last night, and uh, wow, I think, <laughs> oh, wow. says Neil, I don't think I've ever seen such a relentless barrage of impending menace 
on the big screen. But The Menace wasn't in the usual Hollywood form, serial killer, powerful superhero villain. In Dunkirk, The Menace was never personified nor named, just a faceless and relentless high probability of death. This, coupled with a score which was like listening to an increasingly large cat trying to climb a blackboard <laughs> for two hours, made for incredibly tough viewing. My previous view what of the a Dunk- brilliant phrase that my, is. My previous view of the Dunkirk spirit was of smiling military chaps looking at their watches while clicking tin mugs of tea and singing Knees Up Mother Brown. <laughs> this view has been royally corrected. Uh, there's lots more, um, which I think what we'll do is I'll put it into the we'll put it into the podcast okay. um, <clears> because uh, quite how we make this juxtaposition from this movie to your next movie, yeah. I'm going to leave to you. So okay. that's uh, everything we have on Dunkirk, Mark. Okay. It's no surprise that Dunkirk is an absolute slam dunk. Slam dunk. Who, however, could have predicted that Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, did I get away with that? Just about because you used silence and pause. Thank you. Uh, in the in your answer, should turn out to be the surprise treat of the year. So adapted from the much loved book series. If you have you know young kids, and they, I imagine many of them will have grown up. Certainly, I have experience of you know. One of my children who started reading because of the Captain Underpants books. So um, a story is, it's an uh, animation story, is two friends who are obsessed with drawing comic books. Uh, they're called George and Harold, voiced by Kevin Hart and Tom uh, Thomas Middleditch. They, um, they, they make these comics about this useless superhero called Captain Underpants who doesn't have any superpowers. And the joke being that because most superheroes look like they're wearing their underpants outside their clothes, let's make a, a superhero who's power is that he wears his underpants uh, accidentally is that like john major in the steve bell it is yeah is that kind of thing? accidentally through the use of a hypnosis ring that they find in the bottom of a cereal packet they manage to transform their headmaster um who is always angry and grumpy into captain underpants next thing they know the evil professor poopy pants you can see where this is going <laughs> comes along to their school asking for a job now where did i put that resume Nope, not that. Oh, this thing. Aha, here we go. Hmm. Says here you're a science teacher? Not exactly. But you have teaching experience. Oh, no, I can't say that I do. Not even, like, babysitting? I will never sit on a baby. I'm getting a really good vibe about you. Now, hold on. Let me see that resume. It says here that you were a genius inventor? Man! Genius inventor? And then for the last few years, you've been in a very dark place, and your title was Revenge Seeker? Yeah, that's basically what I've been up to. But honestly, kid smiles brighten my heart and fill me with a joy-adjacent feeling. Well, you seem terrific. You're hired. What? Basically, because um, evil Professor Poopy Pants has found out through his life that everyone laughs at his name, he wants to stamp out laughter in the world by removing the huffer guffaw chuckly armalus, which is the part of the brain which is responsible for finding things funny, by making it smaller and smaller with a, with a ray. I have to say that during the course of Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, my huffer guffaw chuckly armalus appeared to get bigger and bigger because I just started laughing and I didn't stop the jokes are I mean it, it this is I'm not being funny but this is the most consistently funny film I've seen in a very long time just for sheer hit rate of laugh out loud gags and it's not oh you know isn't it cute it's it's toilet humor because as I said before the whole point is toilet humor is only funny if it's done properly I just 
loved it. And I thought, how great, because, what, you know, summer's here and what you really need is a family movie that you can take everyone to see and everyone can laugh at the same jokes. And for me, that was always what the Minions were doing. They were offering a bit of that. But Captain Underpants is in a field of its own. And I had heard from this a film critic that I worked with who had also liked it very much called Wendy Eyed. And I said, I've got to see Captain. And she said, oh, you'll love it. And I, I wasn't sure whether she was being ironic because of my bottom, you know, the fact that I find that funny. Captain Underpants is terrific. If you have young kids and they want to see it, great. Take the opportunity to go and see it because I, you will laugh and laugh and laugh and you will come out with a spring in your step thinking, well, that was a proper family film. Unlike, it has to be said, Monster Island, which is clunker of the week, bullied school kid, dad won't let him go anywhere without his inhaler, he discovers that the reason he needs his inhaler everywhere is because monstrous secrets. In fact, his family have a monster gene, and then they must all go to Monster Island. Here's a clip. My antenna are out whoever's responsible, and we've already come up with a few crumbs of information. <sighs> I mean, the the weird thing about Monster Island is that it's it's a film which does that sort of Guillermo del Toro thing about you know being monstrous is is a good thing, and there are a couple of ideas in it that are you know, perfectly benign. But it really was an example of looking at something and thinking, this looks terrible. And uh, when it started off, I thought, you know, sometimes you see things that they look like cheap graphics card stuff done from a, you know, for like for an animated video game or something. And I thought, this, this, surely this is, it's not going to stay like this, is it? And then, and then it did. And um, in, a, in a world in which you have, you know, playing in screen one, Cars 3, which for all its faults, which is, you know, not a great movie in my opinion, but, you know, the, the animation is absolutely immaculate. And, you know, in screen three, you've got Despicable Me 3. And then recently we've had uh, Red Turtle, just absolutely breathless, wonderful animation. And then we've had My Life as a Courgette with this superb stop motion animation. In an age in which you've got all these things, I cannot imagine that anybody will, you know, unless there is literally no seats left in any of the other screens, taking time out to go see Monster Island. It is, it, it, it is a major disappointment. So uh, I think I know the answer to this. What is our movie of the week? Well, obviously our movie of the week is Dunkirk. But I do want to just flag up at the same time, if you want a family you know, event, you're not into taking your family to a woman. But Captain Underpants is, and I'm not saying this, okay. he's really terrific. Now, the, the great thing is that everyone is listening now. Are we yeah. now recording? Yeah, we, yeah we're, we're on. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just, I've got to, to put my headphones back on. I said my the full superpowers. version of Chris Nolan because, yeah. we're, because we're all podcast yes. ears now. Um, podcast ears. Podcast ears. Yeah, that's what we are. Um, <laughs> I did. I don't think I've ever heard that word before. So just another thing, because we didn't. Have you got your podcast ears on? As in, <laughs> as in, with your podcast as nose. In, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But, but you anyway. did, and now I'm going to laugh about it for a while. Okay. Current. No. I, anyway. So uh, yeah, Chris Nolan, great, and if and he needs to come back on the show uh, again shortly. And what we want to have, but he is... won't come back on the show shortly because he'll come back on the show when he makes his next film, which will be. You know, however many years. Yeah, it would be many, many years. But, but, but you know, I, 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 I would... I'm sorry to quote myself. I'd say, you know, why, why be Michael Bay when you could be Christopher Nolan? Um, 
we did mention earlier on about uh, whether there was a minimum amount of clothing that you should wear before we going to the cinema. Robert in Milton Keynes, whilst I appreciate your views on sweaty legs and shorts in cinemas, yeah. I always wear shorts and a vest, no nipple showing, because every cinema I go to seems to have the heating on cranked up to 11. Even, well, I, there's you know, surely the code of conduct thing about should have an exception that cinema chains provide a comfortable environment, although I would still... Can I say uh, something that's, that's interesting about that on an on a, on a industrial cinematic level? One of the reasons that Jaws is generally considered to be the first summer blockbuster has to do with air conditioning, OK? Um, Jaws came out in 75 and it came out, I think it was originally June, either end of May, beginning of June. Um, so just as things were starting to get really, really hot. And the thing that everyone talks about is that people were reading Jaws on the beach and they were reading the book and they were seeing the movie. And so it was like this sort of all round experience, you know. And yet one of the most important reasons that Jaws had started to do well was because you'd had the rise of mole, multi, mole, multi. I've done this twice now. A, a slum dank and, uh, mall and, a, and a mall multiplexes. So basically, you know, cinemas in malls. And one of the big things about America and American cinemas was air conditioning. And so you'd be in those uh, months of the hottest period of the summer, June, July. You know, not everybody was near the beach. Big country, large sections of it, nowhere near a beach. Um, in which you had malls that were air-conditioned and you went to see Jaws. You went to the cinema and Jaws was the thing that was playing on every screen. And so weirdly enough, there is a direct connection between the rise of what we now think of as the modern blockbuster cinema, the film that opens wide in you know umpty, thrumpty different screens and immediately trounces all previous box office figures and then stays there. And one of the reasons, which is generally attributed to it by film academics, and I think they're right, is that it was an environmental thing that you... Not environmental as in looking after the environment, because as we all know, air conditioning doesn't look after the environment. It actually does the opposite. But it was one of those things in which it was to do with, let's go to the cinema because it'll be cool. I mean, not just cool, but cool. It's a very Reithian answer, that was, because I feel as though I've been educated. And informed you know, and entertained. That is all in one almost art, the nicest it. thing you've ever said to me. Christian in Rustington says, uh, I was once sat in a traffic jam for an hour and a half in boiling heat on our way to see Moonrise Kingdom. By the time we got there, we'd missed the film due to the traffic. But we were so hot, we decided we'd go to whatever film was on next. Because of air conditioning. As the air conditioning in our local cinema is excellent. I'm sorry, I, to just say for the, for the... I didn't... I didn't. No, this no. is just... This is genius production. OK, this is genius production. Sadly... Well done, Robin. 30 out of 30, Robin. Well done. The next available screening was what to expect when you're expecting, which was so abysmal, both of us fell asleep. But we fell, Alex a- fell asleep in the air conditioning. We fell asleep comfortable, having taken <laughs> off our pants. What? Presumably Christian means trousers. Anyway. Oh, so where, where is he? Where, we is he were, however, where is he writing from? Well, Rustington. Well, I don't Where's think... Where's Rustington? In Sussex. <laughs> I'm sorry, in Sussex. Rusty- pants. Rustington. Means pants. Rustington. Was Rustington on Sea is where Michael, Fla- Michael, Michael Flanders I, I, used to live there. To, up to, to Rusty, uh, Ashton Underline, where I travelled from Rustington, Rustington on Sea. Michael Flanders oh, in Flanders and Swan. No, I travelled from Rustington on Sea. Ashton Underline, and then I encountered a little bit, which I'll tell you all about another time. Yeah, it's Michael Flanders. So it's down on the south coast. It's near where my granny used to live. 
So that's that's how I know Rustington. Anyway, that is a musical song. Down on the south coast where my granny used to live. I think Danny Dyer had a hit with that. But we felt comfortable having oh. taken off our trousers because we were wearing boardies, so board boardies. shorts, I imagine. Obviously, a surfing culture has grown up in Rustington since the time of Michael <laughs> Flanders. Who would have thought it? So I felt it was acceptable to go in pantsless as it was so hot. I also So he mo- does mean trouserless, well, but he's got... But how many... Why would you have board shorts on underneath under tr- trousers? Yeah. And can I say, no wonder you were hot. I also spent Unless most he means of, boxers. Most of the film uh, with my shirt raised around my head... <laughs> Probably unacceptable, but the film was absolute tripe, so I didn't care. I think this this is a very unusual community of people now moved into Rustington. Board shorts and uh, shirts over their heads. So is that like like swimming costume underneath big baggy trousers? Why would you go to the cinema with swimming costume underneath baggy trousers? My my contention, though, is if you you were to walk along the seafront at Rustington and go up to someone and say, do you like my pants, they won't think you're talking about trousers. No, pants in England... In, in particularly in Rustington, where in they fact, have standards in all of Britain. I think I, I think it would be the same in you know any part of the UK. Pants means underclothes. I think so. The American Embassy. We might let you. And off. what charming underclothes you both have on. Uh, right. I think we should do TV movie of the week. That was a very good Tim Curry impression that I just did, which you completely ignored. Well, on the grounds that it was could have been anybody really. Tell me, Brad. Do you have any tattoos? TV movie of the week. Uh, Tom yeah. Downey says. Always bet on black. Sean Coniston says... Hang on, I, hang on, wait, 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 I've got to get the list. Been, I can, it, wait, I've got to get the list, and since this is the podcast, it doesn't matter, time is not an issue. As they say in Boogie Nights, it's digital, we just keep rolling. Like, well, like Christopher Nolan, we have a number of different time, <laughs> time frames that are yeah, running you at the same one hour. I'm in one, one, one week. In, the other. in light of the recent retirement announcement by Daniel Day-Lewis, worth admiring his talent again in The Gangs of New York, Callum Sires says, well, let's see... Is it on at an ungodly hour? Yes. It starts at midnight. Is it on TV channel no one has heard of? Yes, it's on Talking Pictures TV. Is it an underappreciated movie? I think lots of people have heard of Talking Pictures TV. By a great director? Yes, it's Orson Welles' The Stranger, so Mark will go for that. Grant Andrews says, well, Goodfellas is the best film on this week. My vote is with Gangs of New York. Gangs took two watches to grasp, and I look forward to another watch through of the finer details held within this weird proto-gangster epic. Paul Green says, The skin I live in should be chosen. It's a remarkable thriller that, that looks stunning and is one of Almodovar's best. No doubt good really needs will be to be chosen. called The Skin in Which I Live. But isn't. But must shout out for the foreign language film at Stupid O'Clock. Uh, Pepe Guicho Salinas. The gangs of New York should go after the doctor if he chooses Mamma Mia. And now do the right thing and choose the Al- Almodovar movie. Muchas gracias. And Stephen Jones is quite simple. Mark will go for Mamma Mia as his review is the greatest he's ever done on the show. He won't, though. Let's find out. What is our TV movie of the week? Mamma Mia. And not least... He will, though. He will, though. Not least because uh, Chloe Catchpole, who has uh, written this show many times and is a very fine film journalist, um, uh, it, uh, tweeted recently about how she was not not ashamed of loving it. And uh, and I think that's great. And I have... I mean, there, there's there's another one coming, isn't there? There's, there's Mamma Mia 2. Is that right? Did I read that? Uh, yes, I think yeah, you've yeah. read that. And... Uh, and I've, you know, I, as I said, when I was watching the film, it was just like, you know, black became white, up became down, left became right. And I suddenly found myself going all pink and, and just like absolutely going with it. No matter, no matter that Piers Brosnan, bless him, cannot sing. I don't care. I mean, it was, it's just a delight. So my TV movie of the week is indeed Mamma Mia! Exclamation mark. 
Don't leave the exclamation mark off. It's very important. Uh, on Saturday on ITV3 at seven in the evening. Did you know that an exclamation mark was originally called, I think I'm right in saying, an exclamation an point. adulation point? No. Yes. No, adulation point like. is your front door, isn't it? That's the point at which we, we pay homage like that. Well, why adulation? Because is it, was it, is it because it used to come after Hosanna? I have no idea, but apparently, apparently that's true. That the point d'exclamation used to be point. Ooh, ad- get you or thank, get a vous. Thank you very much, Monsieur Mayor. But the, it, 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 the new one, by the way, is called Mamma Mia. Here we go again, which is a, which you have to say. <laughs> that's just genius. It's a great, that's great title. Of course, it is. Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Yes, Fant- I, I love it already. I love it already. Um, Dear Mystic Mark and Psychic Simon, I'm writing this very stern email. Oh, dear. And actually, I have to tell you, this is a painful email. Oh, dear. Okay. Right, so you might want is to it... grip the sides For of our Millbank television. is it painful? Us. Well, not us. Mainly, it's uh, from Katie. Okay. But is it, are we going to get harangued? It's a wit-entertainment-related injury story. Oh, OK, fine, 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 fine. on oh, Saturday night. OK, OK, all right. Is it my fault before you go on? Well, you know, not really, but yes. There I was happily listening to the podcast and your top-rate banter whilst I was getting ready to go on a special girls' night out that we had planned for weeks. With my I'm fresh, already feeling guilty. My fresh, brand spanking new, sharp and long fake nails on, I attempted to put my contact lenses in so I would look absolutely fabulous when I left. Hang on, you attempted to put contact lenses in with your new nails on? With the podcast coming to a close and my utmost attention needed to the task at hand, I appeared to miss out your warnings about your funny impression of shouty woman, which was to come. (laughs) As you two went silent, I presumed that the podcast had come to the end and as contact lens reached I, Mark's shouting made me jump, meaning instead of the lens, my freakishly long nail... Entered my <gasps> eye. Entered my eye instead. No. Did it? Four hours later. No. In A&E. No. And lots of tears. I was sent home with a scratched eye and an eye patch that I need to wear in public. So if either of you feel the need to pretend to be shouty woman again, I'm afraid I'll have to come round and put a bat up your nightdress. <laughs> Says Katie. I appreciate she, she actually says that. <laughs> Where did that like, come from originally? I, I used to say that a lot. Yeah, on air. Would... It was, it's a Basil Fawlty line. Basil Fawlty. <laughs> I'm going to visit you in the small hours, but a bat up your nightdress. So, Katie, I appreciate the humour at the oh. end, but I know because the good lady ceramicist her indoors, who's in the wars anyway, having fallen over and broken her arm, but she too had a scratched eyeball. Can I say? And it's so did the, the most amazingly painful. So did the thing. good lady professor her indoors. Well. Yeah, I so, am. I I am really genuinely sorry. We did four hours. We did forewarn. We uh, did. We did flag it up. It and, is Katie's fault. And <laughs> ult- no, well, ultimately, I think it's Robin's fault because Robin is in charge of health and safety. So if there is a legal thing, then maybe yes. it's Robin that they need. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Well, it's Katie. What we'll do. But is- I am very. I'm very sorry. That just sounds horrible. Well, Katie, if you, uh, I think we've got your. Well, I think we'll. Well, we could upgrade Katie's cabin for the she, cruise. Is she coming? Yeah. Okay. Fine. Then in that case, yeah. Put up. Um, and we'll give you a lifetime supply of free eye patches. No, but she only has to wear the eye patch for how long? Well, she's got to wear it in public. We are doing a. a is it a piratical well, eye we're patch? Do it. Well, we could. Do, is she going to? Is she going to carry a hook and we, a parrot? We could do a pirate's evening. <laughs> yeah. We? There we go. 
Th- that's it. Let's do a pirate-themed evening for Katie. But not Caribbean pirates. No. This is kind of good old-fashioned pirates. Good old-fashioned jolly Dread, pirates. Dread Pirate Roberts. That's it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so it's... Um, so it's uh, it's that it's that kind of pirate. What? Sorry, the Dread Pirate Roberts, Again. Princess Bride. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay, the, the, the mythical, uh, pirate. not the uh, pirate radio. No, the no, we're not going to do that. Shh, can't talk about that. I can't. That's the Richard film that we don't like. <laughs> the Richard film that you don't it's like. The Richard film that isn't funny. That's <laughs> my laugh. That is. I'm sorry. I was with Richard Curtis at Latitude. Um, yes, I saw, I saw the photographs. They look very jolly. He had to choose a guilty pleasure. Yes. And uh, he chose Emmanuel too, Which is very guilty. It's very, it's very guilty. And more, more impressively, he didn't seem to remember anything about it at all. Did you show, did you show a clip? Yes, we showed two clips. Oh, we showed one clip which involved somebody eating yoghurt whilst ladies with fans danced around. And then we showed another clip in which Sylvia Christel comes into a man's bedroom and finds him in the bath, but a propeller in his bed. Classic. <laughs> they don't make him like be, that anymore. Could be EastEnders, couldn't it? Or Casualty, maybe. More likely Casualty. casualty. Um, Dave Singleton in Edinburgh, uh, he of Engineers Corner, uh, in answer to your question, which is shorter, this came up last week, a yeah. microsecond or a nanosecond, the answer is a nanosecond, this being one thousandth of a microsecond. So there are 1,000 nanoseconds in a microsecond and one million microseconds in a second. Also, I would like to welcome my colleague Emily. Now, this says Pasley. I, I guess it's probably Paisley, but anyway... It's Emily P, who I've recently helped convert to the church. I told her how I had previously managed to have my email read out on the podcast, in which I requested the creation of Engineers Corner, or possibly STEM Corner, as in science, technology, engineering and maths. She replied, wouldn't it have been better to have called it a STEM cell? Which, of course, yes, which it would have been. That's very good. So can we have that? Dave and Emily, consider yourselves in the STEM cell. That's very good. So I would like to invite you, Mark, to do, to do another review, and then we can wrap up with some more Dunkirky business. Uh, Dunkirky business. And, um, yeah. OK, well, let's do two things. Oh, and DVD of the week. Yeah. So let's do Firstly Scribe, um, which is a, a Euro thriller, uh, it, which starts out well. That's not promising. What is anything that's pre- a Euro thriller? Why do you th- why, why do you think that doesn't sound promising? Because I think it's because Hugh Grant always talk, used to talk about Euro pud as the kind of stuff that he always used to get involved with. Okay, and so it's usually you know if you'd said this is a French film, a French thriller, I'd have okay. thought, oh, okay. All right. But why is it Euro thriller? Well, I just it's a French thriller. I just said Euro thriller. Okay, well I think French now thriller it sounds better. I it sounds like Gitane and Gaulois. Oh, I see. Sophistication. Okay, so you're so you're you're pro France but anti Europe. Actually, it's all about smoking again, isn't it? So it is, yeah. ignore the Gitane and the Gaulois. Francois Clouzet, if I may. Um, so uh, he starts out as a guy who works uh, in accounting uh, office and uh, the job is driving him to drink and his life uh, falls apart. He is approached one day whilst unemployed by somebody from a private security firm and says, we've got a job for you. We would like you to transcribe conversations that we have got recorded. And he says, well, I'm the wrong guy for the job. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm accountancy. I do numbers and that sort of thing. He says, no, you're exactly the right man for the job. What we need is somebody with no particular politics, no close friends, somebody who is meticulous. And he is told the parameters of the job, which is that he arrives first thing in the morning in this uh, empty apartment where there is a typewriter, an old-fashioned typewriter, nothing connected to the internet, old-fashioned typewriter and cassette tapes with the conversations and he has to listen to the conversation and he has to type it exactly as it comes off the cassette. He must stay there until six o'clock and if 
he finished his work before six o'clock, he has to stay, do a jigsaw puzzle, do something. He's not allowed to smoke. He is not allowed to uh, talk to anybody else in the building. Turn up, do the work, stay, leave. And that's actually a very interesting sort of weirdly kind of Kafka-esque premise. The money that he is going to be paid, which is good money, is left for him in an envelope. He has no contact with his employers. He doesn't know how to get in touch with them. And then the conversations which he is transcribing start to become more and more convoluted and more and more sinister. And he realises that he is in the middle of a really sort of labyrinthine uh, uh, ongoing thing which involves politics and the law and, you know, very, very many bad things. And suddenly he finds that the people he thinks he's working for are not the only people he's working for. In fact, there is somebody else who needs information from him and he becomes a pawn in this game, which involves much bigger players of which he is absolutely, you know, he doesn't know who anybody is, but there's a sequence in it which is almost like the marathon man. Is it safe? Is what is it safe? You know that thing when you're and the weird thing is that Clouseau has got a little bit of Dustin Hoffman about him. He's grown into this more and more. I mean, I think he's a very, very good kind of everyman uh, hero or anti-hero because he looks permanently sort of downtrodden, and he's got that Dustin Hoffman thing of what I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what this is about. So it starts out very promisingly, very kind of paranoid. It then has to play its hand, and at the point that it does that, things start to fall apart. It moves into something which is much closer to being an action movie. It moves into something which actually starts to lose the gripping appeal it had because it comes down to standoffs which are much more generic. But it begins very well. Um, Sami Bourgeois is absolutely terrific as the unreadable. Is he the adversary? Is he the ally? And it's it's a shame because the first sort of half an hour 40 minutes is such a good setup it, the film can't quite cannot quite manage to continue that on but it's diverting and if it comes up on um you know tv or video i think uh, i think you'd find it quite gripping so it's called uh, scribe also out uh, it's worth mentioning is victim which is being reissued as part of you may have heard all this stuff that's been on the news about the uh, anniversary of the sexual offenses act and this is a film uh, which was written uh, in the wake of the wolfenden report which was the thing which recommended the decriminalization partial decriminalization of uh, homosexuality um and this became a really big film became a really big cause celeb in 1961 and it is, to this day, an extraordinary piece of work that is every bit as relevant and important as it was when it first came out. Um, here's the trailer for the film from its first release. What thread of strange emotion puts this brilliantly successful barrister on the wrong side of the law? What crime links him with this frightened boy on a building site? And why is he afraid? Why do some people help him? Some people turn away in disgust. Why can't he stick with his own sort? You can come home Frank Jeffries when you've got rid of him. What sinister shadow from the past now falls between husband and wife? When we were married, we had no secrets from each other. I made you a promise then. I haven't broken that promise, if that's what you mean. What secret held these men prisoner in a tangled web of tyranny and terror? What crime linked an aging hairdresser and a famous star of the theatre? They are all victims. Victims of what? What do you do? You threw your hands up like that. What is that? Well, I was going to say, 
Who could guess? Who could guess? Okay. So, uh, Bogart Sylvia Sims, you heard in that uh, clip there, he's That's basically... an amazing trailer. Isn't it brilliant? Quite and amazing. actually, it's... it's, it's, it's you applaud know, it to Simon uh, in the production team for finding that trailer because it, what it does is it places it so much in context of the time of, you know... It says a lot about a film, the way in which people decide to sell the film to an audience and the way in which they you know, decide to, you know, what the film is about and telling them about the themes of it. So uh, Dirk Bogart is a married barrister with this you know, secret, not so guilty secret, um, um, who takes on a blackmail ring, which is targeting uh, gay men at a time when homosexuality was still illegal. Because one of the things that the Wolfenden Report had done was to point out that the law as it stood was basically a blackmailer's charter. And the film is important for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's a really, really good film. I mean, it is really impressive. It really stands up and, uh, you know, brilliantly done. Partnership with Basil Dinn and Michael Relf, who was a you know, producer-director partnership behind things like Violent Playground and Sapphire. And, and uh, essentially, what you, what you get is this film, which is made by people who are very, very committed to the ideas that the film is talking about. Bogart said that when he took the role on... He he knew that the that the film had been sort of turned down by a number of people, and that you know they were afraid of the subject matter. And he wrote about it in his book Snakes and Ladders. He said that when Allied were casting Victim, very few of the actors approached to play it accepted. Most flatly refused, and every actress asked to play the wife of the central character turned it down without even reading the script. And then Sylvia Sims, who was so great in the film took it on. And she said that the reason that she did was that she'd worked in a theatre company alongside John Gilgood. And so she had some experience of what the law meant. And also that a family friend had committed suicide after being accused of being gay. And for her, the, the, the role felt like something that had to be done because it was a story that had to be told. Um, it's a fascinating piece of drama. Um, it's extraordinary. You know, the, how much society has moved on since then, and yet it is still very, very relevant. Uh, it's called Victim. It's uh, being reached. If you can see it in cinemas, do. It's also going to be available on uh, streaming services. And uh, full disclosure, I've done an introduction for it for the BFI, so you know, uh, so obviously I'm kind of committed to it. So, but it's great. Uh- Good, thank you. I consider that my introduction. So if thank I get you. to see it, I, I don't need. You don't. To I've say done it. I've done it. I gave it to you. In fact, I'm doing it on a one-to-one basis. I'm literally if going you, around knocking on doors, knocking on people's doors, and saying hello. Do you know me? I'd, I'd like, like to come I'd to like your to house and introduce a film. It'll be on television at nine o'clock, but I shall be here at five two. Can I send you sell you some lipstick products, <laughs> madam? It's the man from Avon. So um, does the man from Avon still come around? Bing bong, Avon calling. I wouldn't have thought that that happens very much anymore. Because nowadays you get run off somebody's property. Probably. So I'm going to do some more Dunkirk just because we had uh, so many emails about it and because of our mm. unfairly shortened programme. Um, and you've done the, uh, you know, the Chris Pine was asked to be in the new Chris Nolan movie, said, ah, Dunkirk. That's actually not bad. I haven't done that. You haven't done that. OK, well, there we go. No. Consider it done. Why do Consider all... it a slum dank. <laughs> Why do all... What? Why do all Swedish... Boats. <laughs> this is going to be good. It's not. It's going to be terrible. Why do all Swedish It'll be all right boats, in the edit. Go on. Have a barcode on the side. Why do all Swedish boats have a barcode on the side? I don't know. Why do all Swedish boats have a barcode on the so side? So when they return, you can Scandinavian. <laughs> That's very, very good. Um, why did the Frenchman only eat one egg? It's something to do with enough. It's one egg, egg is enough. Is enough. Okay. Yeah. 
All of which is, is the worst kind of introduction to Morgan and Dunco. Can I just say, I'm used to an amazing standard of uh, emails from our super bright audience and very cine literate audience. The reviews of Dunco have been genuinely astonishing. It's the kind of piece that if, if it was published in one of our estimable newspapers, you go, yeah, OK, that's a, that's a great review. And it's just an email to our show for us uh, uh, to but read But that out. is because we have the very best listeners. Indeed, we do. And, you know... Um, and and a lot of the a lot of the reasons I mentioned in the program uh, a lottery come, reason a lottery reason uh, they come from abroad where everyone has seen it before we have anyway here's Sophia Lanky who is 19 years old and lives in Finland as I, as I, and the headline is Dunkirk, Dunkirk thoughts uh, as I was watching the film on a surface level I thought I was feeling relatively emotionally unengaged okay none of the characters are given enough time personality traits or backstory to be fully fleshed out. However, at various points in the film, I found myself reacting to it physically, suddenly realising I had lifted my hands onto my forehead in anxiety or covered my ears and assumed a sort of cowering position in my seat, reacting on an almost instinctual level to what was happening on screen. This was perhaps most evident during a moment in the latter half of the film involving boats, when I suddenly found myself gasping for breath, tears in my eyes, releasing attention... I hadn't fully even realised had been building. Dunkirk is a film about something much grander than a single person's story, and that is exactly what I believe will give it the power to invoke something deeper than a surface-level interest in story or characters. Even as I found that for some stretches of the film I was merely an outsider, a spectator to events happening on screen, when the credits rolled, I was somehow fully emotionally drained and wiping tears from my eyes. It was a curious experience to be emotionally snuck up on by a film, and I would say this is the first Nolan film to truly do so instead of only mesmerising me with plot or execution. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because that kind of refers to something I was saying before, that pe some people have found Nolan's films to be emotionally cold, to be technically impressive and emotionally cold. Even after cold. Interstellar, I was just thinking, which is now one of my favourite scenes, where that scene where Matthew McConaughey leaves his daughter behind and then in that next that shot. That cut, I know, that cut is brilliant. And in that, fact... That is emotionally charged if, and yeah. engaging. If and, you know, and do you know what I thought when you, when you brought that up? I thought, We'll make a film critic of you yet, oh, really? because that was that was oh, no, come, it was come. it was that was it was such an astute thing to say. It was it was it was on a, it was on a level of the kind of thing that Nigel Floyd always does. That you come out of a movie and he'll go, well, yeah, that bit when, and then he'll mention a bit that you go, oh yeah, you're right. That is the most brilliant thing in the film, and you did that once only, <laughs> just once, just the once in twenty seven years. Uh, Neil Brown, uh, last night I had the privilege of watching Dunkirk at the IMAX in Melbourne, Australia. It exceeded my high expectations, so much so I'm planning a second viewing. Actually, I do think you'll go in to see it, walk out, drain, and then try and go back and go. Yeah, yeah. Having avoided. I think, yeah, I think you're right, the repeat viewing will be very high. Exactly. Having avoided reviews prior to viewing the film, I and now having read them, I was surprised to see the common criticism levelled at Christopher Nolan, as we just mentioned, that his film is cold and emotionally detached. I wonder if those who hold that belief are confusing emotional <clears throat> excuse me, emotional detachment with ambiguity. Dunkirk inspired a range of emotions in me, running from fear and sadness through to excitement and elation. However, even the most heroic acts depicted are often tempered with a sense of doubt of whether it was the right thing for the character yes. to do. Mr Nolan trusts his audience to think about the events on screen and make up their own minds about how to feel. And I wish more mainstream filmmakers would do the same. Yep. Uh, and one more, Graham Belfield, who's in Gothenburg. Gothenburg? Uh, Gothenburg. I saw Dunkirk last night at our local Svensk Film Industry Bio 
in Gothenburg, Sweden, desperate to get a viewing before you guys reviewed it. Can I just say, is it pronounced Gothenburg? Yes. How else would you say? Gothenburg. You say Gothenburg? I would say Gothenburg just no, because you, I mean, I'm, I'm, goth. I'm almost certainly wrong because I am, I'm terrible with pronunciations. But carry on anyway. Anyway, he's in Sweden. This, uh, he's in Sweden. He is. This is no he's ordinary... He's scanning his navy in... Uh, it's not a bad joke, although I did tell it in a slightly convoluted way. Uh, Graham says, This is no ordinary war film, or indeed ordinary film. Dunkirk differs from other even very good films in the genre in that it doesn't employ melodrama and sentiment tied to lengthy monologues from plucky heroes to movers. There is certainly much heroism on display, the off-portrayed people bravely facing up to impossible odds, but the main focus is on basically scared people fighting to survive, and for me, this is the most significant departure from other war films. Dunkirk is a technical and intellectual masterpiece. However, the extent to whether you find it emotionally involving may well depend on how you get on with Nolan's living history stylization. This has to be seen on the biggest screen you can find and is probably the best IMAX film to date. There you go. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, as you quite rightly say, all of those are brilliantly written emails that those of us what write for newspapers are going, mm, I might nick that it's one. Not, it's not. No, I can't. It's too late to nick it. I file my copy on, you know, Wednesday. Anyway, looking forward to the cruise. It's going to be very exciting. I think we're visiting th- pretty much every port. We're you- not finishing. I've got a DVD of the week. I know, yeah. I've got oh, that. No, OK, fine. You're, you're packing up. This is the pre-end title. Oh, I see. Melodrama. Fine. Is it? Yes. I'm not fully packed yet. Oh, I am. I fully packed yesterday. Have you got... I had to. I was instructed to by the good lady professor indoors. She said, do all your packing now. She said, we're, we're going for three weeks. Is there a fracture clinic on the ship? I can't remember. I've never had to use it before. I, I th- there is some kind of first aid. There has to be. Some, some kind of first aid. That might just be like Private Godfrey from Dad's Army with a little thing, with a, with a bandage. <laughs> That's right, with a, with a red cross. My sister Dolly's got some upside-down <laughs> kicks. Would that be any good, Mr. Manning? <laughs> I don't want. If that's what you're offering, we're not going to be able to come this year because we. How, need, can I just, seriously? How bad is it? it? It's 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 fracture clinic. You know, it's basically it's a, it's she got a fractured arm. So no, I know I understand that, but I mean, is it is it in a plaster? Of, can you write things on it? Uh, fingers can wiggle. No, no, but it's not. A pl- it isn't a plaster. I don't I don't know what the rules are, but it's a heavy, it's heavy strapping with extra velcro. Okay, that was a band from the seventies, wasn't it? I think so. Yes, they, they heavy strapping and the extra velcro. Steve but do they not the do plaster Paris anymore? Is that not I a think thing? They, I think they do, but they didn't in this case. I don't know okay. what, what their rules are, but we'll have lots of plaster of Parises okay. who are good. And presumably, ceramicizing, do it, making pots cannot not, cannot be done with the fractured. Happen. Not really, no. Well, in that case, she, of course, she, what, 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 she would need to be on the cruise because you know she can't work. It literally can't work. Can we be upgraded? Can we have the? Can we have your suite instead? We have the same suite. I mean, not the same suite. We have the same. I know you think mine is better. It is. It's bigger and more luxurious. No, it's not. It's just that it's slightly differently positioned. It's more padded. Um, and you have a deeper hot tub. I haven't got a hot tub. And mirrors on the ceiling. I've got mirrors on the ceiling. I haven't got a hot tub. Have you got a hot tub? Not now. No, but I thought we wanted yours. Anyway. If, you, if your room's got a hot tub, you can have. You can have art. I haven't got a hot tub. You need a better agent. You should argue for the hot tub. Ask for ask for the hot tub. It's what everyone does. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Anyway, I'm I am looking forward to it because we're going to all those locations that we never managed before, mm-hmm. including, including Rustington on Sea and Gothenburg. <laughs> In fact, however that's what we're doing. they pronounce we're it, we're going from Rustington straight to Gothenburg. 
And we'll pick anyway. If you've sent us a message, we'll be picking you up. We've taken the itinerary, in, and I think everyone's got pretty much the room that they wanted. And uh, we'll see in a, in, a, in a few hours, in some cases. Yeah, the nice journalist from the from the Financial Times is coming. Is it the Financial Times who wrote the thing about how lovely we are? Well, they can. Yeah, okay, that's, that's good. thank you. Yeah, Fiona Sturgis. I think she's. Uh, I think she's got. A special wing we've given there. Yeah, an entire wing. An entire okay. wing below decks. Um, are you ready? This I've is been our... ready for quite some time. Okay. I just thought you were just wobbling around. Correct. In a... Correct. Okay. I, mean, I've got, I know what I've got to say. I have gags lined up. I'm I've feeling got, you know... hungry. It's time for a sandwich. So that must be DVD of the week time. Oh, ha-ha and chuckles. Anyway, you are cross, aren't you? Anyway, get out, get out, get out, get out. Oi, darling, get out, get out. Along with Gone with the Wind, Splash, and Hope Floats, it's a title that might aptly describe your last attempt at trying hard. It's also a hot contender for this week's DVD of the week. Can I just say, seeing that phrase "trying hard" written down is slightly off-putting for me. Why? Because in our household, that was my... Oh, uh, that was meant going for a poo? It, well, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I've that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many people will have remembered that that's actually what it was. Where are you going? <laughs> going to try hard. Going to try hard. Try hard too. It kind of... A good day to try hard. Did we do all those jokes before? It kind of works. <laughs> oh, it's just a great insight into the... Mayo family life. Oliver Bernard says, for me, it's Dario Argento's classic Tenebrae. Is it Tenebrae? Tenebrae. 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 And I believe the good doctor will choose the same. Romaine Marks absolutely love Get Out. Totally unexpected gem. Whilst it's completely relevant to the current political climate, not just in America, it's also a masterpiece of carefully constructed horror. Every twist, every scare is perfection. Have to say, though, you can't beat classic Mastroianni. And yesterday, today, and tomorrow is fabulous. I think Mark would choose Get Out. Jimmy just because you keep saying, Get Out. Get Out deserves get out. the DVD of the week for its sheer audacity, verve, and contemporary relevance. But can we get a shout out, please, for Andre Tarkovsky's extraordinary stalker and the gleefully perverse delight that is Dario Argenti's Tenebrae? Harry Steele says, in the same week that George A. Romero has passed away, the choice has to be Jordan Peele's Get Out. Get out. Like the late Romero uh, zombie films, Get Out is a horror movie with a message, but one that doesn't overpower the scares or the cracking sense of humour. Mm -hmm. And Ricky Hammond has to be Get Out. I haven't been able to get this film out of my head since I saw it. A truly awesome movie. So what is our DVD well, of the brilliantly, week? brilliantly, it is Get Out. And guess what? Writer-director Jordan Peele... Yes. You made Get Out. Is he about to walk in here? Does the voice of uh, Melvin in... Captain Underpants. Yes! No. Yes! I was just guessing. No, it's exactly right. So it's the perfect double bill. Wow. There's Isn't an, that great? There's an unusual double bill. <laughs> it is. Hey, kids. Both great. Both I know you've great. come for Captain Underpants, but we're yeah. going to do Get Out first. Yeah, exactly. Okay, very good. Well, that's it. You need a sandwich because you've got that yeah. hangry look. That's, that's, very, that's very good. And um, Let's shuffle papers. Apparently there are there are quite a few Avon representatives up and down the country. Have so, you been corrected on this? Thank you, Robin. So, so we'd just like to say hello to we'd all... Like to say bing bong, Avon calling. Maybe they still do that. Well, you'd have to have a doorbell that goes bing bong, but that was definitely how it used what to work. Your, what does your doorbell do? We don't have a doorbell. 
don't you? No, what we have is a is a comedy thing. We have a front door that does not open. You can only get into our house through the back door, right? So basically what happens is you have to wait until you hear... Don't hit that. that and, this is this. And is, then you go. This is a come bl- round the back. Come round the back. And then they come round the back. And then the dog, right, who doesn't knows that the front door doesn't open, so he's not in the least bit interested in anybody going to the front door. Comes round and then scares them off from the back door. But well, that, that is very interesting. However, the next time the week in Westminster is coming live from this particular studio. And you know, uh, token MP comes on to give token MP. to give opinion on you know token issue and be outraged. The microphone is going to be completely bust, and everyone else is going to go. I know why that's bust. It's because Mark started hitting it. it hitting it I was knocking on it. I'm sure oh, from the council. I've come to read your meter. I quite like to think that your doorbell would be uh, tubular bells because that would be perfect. Yeah, actually, yeah. I, somebody sent me a text that they or did they send it to you? It, I, I heard. What did it say? I heard of something on. Uh, the, uh, somebody was on a train, and there was a vicar, and the vicar's phone rang, and it played tubular bells, and they just thought, "That's the bunny." Yeah. No, that's not me. That wasn't me. That, that, was, was, that was somebody else. Friend. Somebody else. But I can't remember. Anything. Anyway, thank you very much, Steve, for downloading this podcast. We won't do this sh- in case you're about to put in your lenses with your long, pointy fingernails. Please don't. We won't be doing the shouty woman thing at the end of ever this. again. Ever, ever for again. Reasons and, of legal. And Mark would like to apologise. No, I wouldn't like to apologise. Well, I, I would like to apologise to the person. But who was it? Janet, Catherine, Mary, Mary, and Bob. Damn it, Janet. Yes. But um, anyway, I'm now stir crazy because we are going on the cruise. La 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 la. That's what Captain Underpants sounds. The podcast. Con- la la. The podcast will continue with whoever is uh, is on the rotor. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. We'll be back super tanned, super gorgeous, and well travelled, <laughs> and, and fed up with each other. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what holidays are all about: spending time with people who drive you round the bend. Are we nearly home yet? <laughs> <laughs>